Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it also on the back side of your message notes. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ, through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The last couple of weeks we've been kind of just orienting ourselves to this book, and now we're kind of kind of trying to get involved in the middle of it. And we see that in this case, the Apostle Paul has started this church in Philippi, but now he is away from them. And what we may not know, if we've not read or been familiar with this book, is he's away from them because he is in prison. He was put in prison. It doesn't exactly say where he is when he wrote this book. Traditionally, he was in prison in Rome, but it doesn't say that exactly. He was in prison quite a few times. He could have been imprisoned earlier uh, than that. And some have speculated that maybe uh, that he was in prison in, in Ephesus when he wrote this book. And that's why he speaks so quickly about coming to see them that short distance. But we don't know. The scriptures do not tell us where it was, although traditionally he was in Rome. So these are his good friends, his church family, if you will, one of the churches which he has started, and a church which we discovered that is close to his heart, the, the apostle Paul's heart. He loves them, and he's writing to them, and while he's in prison, these people have sent to him a love gift, probably food and money for his, uh, uh, for his needs, uh, because in that day, when you were put in prison, all of your needs weren't necessarily taken care of, and often people would have to, families have to come and support people. In fact, they also sent him a friend, a person, his name was Epaphroditus, uh, to be his assistant and his helper there. So this was a church which cared deeply about them. This Philippian church was a tremendously loving and giving church. And so there is a mutuality of affection that occurs between Paul and these people. There's an intimacy between him and this church, which we don't see in any of the other, of the other churches. But he's far away from his church family and from people whom he loves. Have you ever been far away from people whom you love? 
and had to maybe even move away from one church family and still very connect, still feel very connected to that church family. We experience that all the time. Uh, we've had, we've experienced that for ourselves in the various church pa- families that we've been the pastor of. And, uh, you know, uh, it, and, you know, Bob and Barbara are just going to be moving away from us and uh, moving over to North Carolina. And I'm thinking about you. I'm reading about this text and about the Apostle Paul and, uh, uh, and, their, and his love for this, these people. And so we see something about his affection for this church family. And it's really a, a, a letter early on where he's giving them thanks for the gifts that they've given to him. It's really an extended thank you note. It's an, and it gives to us a clear picture into the love between a pastor and his people. And here I am, your pastor, and you are the flock that God's given me the privilege of being a part of, and we've been enjoying a, a great season of growth and, 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 uh, and love together as a church family during the past five or so years we've been meeting together as a church family. So when I read this book, I don't just think of it about Paul and his, uh, uh, his experience then, but I think about myself and uh, the, the example that Paul sets in terms of how he prays for and seeks to encourage his own church family. So in this text, I just want you to very simply see two things. Number one, a pastor, the pastor's heart for his people. And number two, the pastor's prayer for his people. And we're going to finally finish this little section of Scripture through the 11th verse today and focus on those last several verses in that text. First of all, the pastor's heart for his people. I love the little phrase that is found in here, I hold you in my heart. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Isn't that a beautiful metaphor? I hold you in my heart heart. There within my, uh, uh, although chances are I didn't check it in this particular case, it might, me, it might be literally saying, I hold you in my bowels, which is probably, they didn't use the word heart in the same way we did, but that doesn't quite communicate the same to us, does it? I hold you in my heart. You're very near to me. Tenderly I feel towards you. I hold you in my heart. So let's see something about the pastor's heart for his people. You know, it's significant that Jesus didn't say to his disciples, you shall be my rancher, but be my, be a shepherd for my people. Your ranchers don't have a connection to the cattle like a shepherd had a connection to his sheep. They love the sheep. They lead the sheep. They lay down their lives for the sheep. They care for the sheep. And so we see that the pastor, which is a shepherding or pastoral or uh, an agricultural term, already includes in it the sense of deep connection between God's under-shepherds, his pastors, and those people whom he has been uh, given the responsibility for. So what do we see about the Paul, the Paul, the pastor, Pastor Paul's heart for uh, heart for his people? We see that first of all, that is characterized by thankfulness. He felt thankful I, in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Whenever you come to my mind, I feel thankful. You know, one of the things that happened to me when I was traveling a little bit a couple weeks ago to Portland and O is I very often then sort of describe the place where I had come from, the church I was a part of. And it never fails that the moment I think about you guys meeting under the trees, under the canopy, I feel proud and I feel thankful, thankful. I thank my God 
every time I remember you. And in fact, certainly the Apostle Paul must have felt the way because if you're with us last week, you discovered that this wasn't even a church he intended to plant. God had to redirect him through a variety of tosses and turns until he finally ended up there in Philippi by the river where those women were meeting, and he told them about Jesus, and that church started. And I think the Apostle Paul always had a special place in his heart for the reality that that church began not by his own initiative, but by God's divine directive. And maybe that's partly why he felt so thankful. I certainly can identify with that as we came into starting this church. Some people think of the starting of a church as an act of faith. For us, it was more of an act of desperation. <laughs> you know, we just felt compelled to see if God wanted to have a church family right here in the heart of our beloved uh, Cave Creek, nestled up among all of the thrift stores and the bars and the eating establishments and all the reasons people come here for fun. Why not have a place in Cave Creek where people come here for worship? Cave Creek, which has an outsized reputation than its size is. Only a town of 4,000 or so people within the city limits, maybe 40,000 if you consider all the people who go to a Cave Creek school or the, or the zip code around, a very small town. But you might say, I'm a, from Cave Creek anywhere in the United States, and they might say, oh, yeah, I've heard of that place. A town with an outsized reputation for its Western lifestyle and for who knows what all that's there um, in Cave Creek. But I had thought, wouldn't it be great if some people could say, Cave Creek, isn't that where there's a church? Couldn't it be? And sure enough, when we got going after first a few months, then we get this call from uh, the New York Times saying, Are there a church that meeting at that saloon? And they do a little story about us when we were just a short, small time, uh, uh, a small amount, a number of people meeting together right over here where a tree used to be and we're <laughs> uh, right by the windmill that used to be there. And I see those little pictures sometimes, and my heart is wistful and thankful that God wanted to see a church here in this town. We should be thankful for those people God has placed in our lives. I believe there's application not just for pastors in their churches, but for all of us in the relationships that we have. You know, every church is filled with its own sets of frustrations and difficulties and, uh, and that's fine, uh, and challenges. Um, the, uh, um, you know, and it's easy to become critical or judgmental and frustrated, but we should feel thankful. I hope for your own family, even despite its own struggles and difficulties, that you will feel thankful for your family. I thank my God every time, uh, every time that, I, that, I re, that I remember you. I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Thankfulness. But also we see right then after that, he moves on to joyfulness. Always in every prayer of, my mind, uh, of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And as you know, joy is one of the hallmark characteristics of this little epistle. Several times he uses the word joy or rejoice. It's known as the letter of joy. And here's this apostle writing while he is in prison. And he could be very negative and frustrated and filled with bad news. But he says, I'm filled with joy, always thankful. And the thing that made him most joyful was those people. He was joyful because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So thankfulness, joyfulness, but also partnership. What does that mean? Well, the actual word there for partnership is the word koinonia, 
which you may not realize is the winning word in the recent spelling bee. Did you guys remember that? The winning word in the recent spelling bee was koinonia. But a lot of Christians know the word koinonia because it's the word fellowship. For us, that usually means some of you go with a cup of coffee and enjoy a good time with all Christian intentions, right? But you know, the Bible never uses fellowship in that way. Never. It's not just a couple people who enjoy hanging out together. It speaks about deep partnership, deep connection. It's a partnership. In fact, that's why here in that verse where it says, for your partnership in the gospel, that is the word koinonia. It means that they share together around a certain object. When you have a partnership in business, it means not just that you like each other and you're friends together. You're doing No, you're together for the business, right? That's what the business is. That's what the partnership. You may have a friendship, and you hope to have had that before, during, and after, but right now you have a partnership, and it's because you've got a business that the both of you are responsible for. There's an object to the partnership. What's the object to our fellowship? It's not that just you and I are friends and like each other and enjoy spending time together, but our object here is the gospel, our fellowship, our partnership in the gospel. It is that story about the God who loved us and let us make our own mess and then rescued us by becoming one of us, by dying for us and being raised for us so that we can have forgiveness for our past, purpose for our uh, present, and hope for our future. And we are united, partnered, fellowship in that gospel. We're part, and later in verse 7, we're partners in grace. The same word, a very similar word, with the word koinonia in it, in the seventh verse, uh, where it says, because of holding because we are all partakers, that's the word, partakers with me of grace. That's son koinonia. It's partners with me of grace. So we are partners, not just because we like each other, because of, but of course we do, and we hope we do. Not just because we happen to live in the same community and sort of go to the same church and have a No, we are partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that kind of word. That's why Christians should never be flippant about their Christian relationships. In the same way that I have two physical biological brothers and one biological sister, and we should even though we may sometimes have disagreements and frustrations, whatever, we should never forget the fact that we have a connection. And it's not just that I chose him to be my brother. It's that a decision was made that made me part of a family together. We share a common life together because of our parents. We have the same parents. And this is why in the body of Christ, even the partnership that we have goes far beyond just this little gathering here today. It means we're partnered with the people who are meeting across the street in the church there, the Episcopal. We are partnered with them in the gospel and in grace, and we're partnered as well with the church which meets the churches which meets up and up Cave Creek Road from here, 
right? And down Cave Creek Road from here and over the mountain, we're partners. And it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It goes all around this state. It goes to people who have different nationalities altogether, people with whom we have nothing in common, we think. But we have so much in common because we are partners together in the gospel and in grace. And that's what's beautiful when we think about our beloved Bob and Barbara moving to be become maybe part of a new church family. On the one hand, they will never lose their partnership with us. Why? Because our partnership is with the gospel. But it also means that they can join into a new family and be a part of that family and have an extended family that is, grows in love. There's a partnership in grace, in the gospel. The Apostle Paul understood this. This is why, if I don't get too long-winded, we will talk about the importance of maintaining unity in the church family. This is why it was a big deal for Paul, because the body of Christ is not divided, not split up into pieces. We have a common heritage, and I wish that though we might have individual church distinctives, which mean we have to worship a little differently than other kinds of churches, that I wish they would never forget that whether we are Coptics or Catholics or Charismatics or Christians or, I mean, or, or conservatives or evangelicals, we're all part, we're all Christians together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have a partnership with them. The Apostle Paul never forgot that. And he thanked God for their partnership. And when he says they're, they're partners in the gospel, that's a, a way that they would have understood when he says from the first day until now, he, that's his, one of his ways of saying thank you for expressing your partnership by sending to me a gift. It's not explicit, but it's implicit and understood. He actually never says thank you for the gift until the fourth chapter. <laughs> but it's here. Thank you for being a partner with me in the gospel. And a partaker of grace, it's in verse 5 and in verse 7, because this Philippian church, and in 1 Corinthians, or maybe it's 2 Corinthians, they're called the Macedonian church. They were known by their, their giving spirits, and they had sent a gift to him far away, though he was. Thank you, he said, for your partnership, your cooperation towards your fellowship in the gospel. And so because of that, then he says, he has not only thankfulness, joyfulness, and part, a sense of partnership, but also confidence, because I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He knew that because God was the one who had started their walk with him, God could be counted to continue their walk with them. One of the tragic things about so many churches is they're so leader-oriented, so dependent on a certain program, a certain style, a certain leader, that if the leader goes, if the program changes, they lose their sense of connection to the head who is Jesus Christ. Our goal is not to get you connected to me, although of course I love to be loved, that's not the issue, but rather that your goal is to be connected to Jesus, our partnership in the gospel, Paul's confidence. He didn't say, I'm confident that as long as you listen to everything I do, everything will go great in your life. Keep, you know, he didn't say, I'm confident. He did say, I'm confident he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on as we lead into our next point where it says in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, I love this. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, the apostle Paul's longing for them was, was deep within his gut. And this really is the place where the word affection 
is the word bowels of Christ Jesus. It just doesn't communicate well in English, does it? Sometimes versions have said tender mercies. Even the word heart doesn't mean anything, but we understand that imagery, right? I, I feel the deep love. He's basically saying, I have the, the love I have for you, the longing I have for you is not just mine. It's because a love that Jesus has through me for you. The apostle Paul had a deep love for those people, a deep longing for those people. And oh, oh would, must, must, might it be so that within our church families, we would have a sense of partnership, joyfulness, thankfulness, confidence, and mutual longing for one another so that when others hurt, we hurt with them. When others rejoice, we rejoice with them. You see, obviously here, the Bible, the Scriptures assume that there is a deep personal involvement in people's lives. As a church grows, it needs to find smaller settings where people can be connected to one another. That's why we have small groups at our church, which I love for you to be a part of, whether they're prayer groups or study groups, and we hope that we will have more this fall as we get, get going. You can check out those in the back of your, in your, your, your uh, uh, program folder. Paul's heart for his people. But then he says, I pray for you. And so look, secondly, at Paul's prayer for his people. It's quite typical that when Paul opens a letter to a church, he opens with a very extensive prayer. And one of the things we can take away right away from this is so often when you write a note to someone, who writes notes nowadays? We write emails or texts, right? Uh, uh, notes are good things to write, by the way. You might want to keep that habit going. But we often just say, I'm praying for you. You're in my prayers. We just give that generic thing. Perhaps you might want to consider doing what the Apostle Paul, when he says, and this is my prayer. This is what I'm praying for you. Perhaps you would like to take the time to think about writing a prayer right at that moment. I pray that God would give you the grace to see what it is he's doing in your life, and he would lead you. Whatever it is that you're praying, what would you pray for that person? How would you pray for that? Put a few words of prayer. The Apostle Paul did that in just about every one of his books. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. So one time he says, I'm praying that. I thank God for you. But most of the times he does what he does, did here in Philippians, and he had a specific prayer, prayer for his people. And in fact, it's all the way through this text. Notice he says, in verse 3 and 4, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy, right? Yeah, uh, the, uh, and, then, uh, and, and then verse 9, which we're going to study right now, and it is my prayer. It is my prayer. We should be praying for people. I don't know if you have a regularly established system by which you pray, but if you don't, figure out how to do it. And to do it. It's not really optional. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, to have a regular time of prayer. Now, if you're like me, you felt guilty as soon as I said that. <laughs> because prayer happens and you've got all the excuses. Well, I just pray as it comes to mind. I just have this conversation with God. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a time when you sit down specifically to pray, that your body knows this is the time for prayer. It should be Bible reading and prayer. And most of us find that we find one of those two more comfortable to do. 
For me, I've always been comfortable reading the Bible. I've done that since I was a kid. I've loved reading the Bible and thinking about the Bible. But prayer has always been more difficult to me. So I've had to be much more intentional about how it is that I pray so that prayer becomes second nature. It will become second nature when you begin to make it a difficult habit that you start. You know, a lot of you know that I ride a bicycle, and one thing that's happened after uh, about two years of riding the bicycle is I find that I wait, especially in the summer, I wake up in the morning, early in the morning, and my body says to me before my mind, let's go. And it kind of makes me mad. (laughs) But it's so much better when for two years I had to say to my stinking body, let's No, I don't care how much you want to go back to sleep. Get up and go. And my body is just, you know know what that's like because a lot of you are in that situation. But what happened after a long period of time is that my body gets up and it says, even before my mind, all right, let's go. Where are we going? A little bit like your dog who wakes you up in the morning and says, let's go to the door, right? He's just used to it. And he just goes. And then you follow along. That can happen with your prayer and Bible reading. That can happen. But don't expect it to happen in a moment. Begin to make a regular habit, ideally in the morning first thing when you get up. For many, many years, I've had a few mantras. One was, and I I still say it this way, but it was never, now it's not. So it was this, Scripture before sports. What that would happen in the old days, remember you had these things you got in your Every day, they called a newspaper. They used to show up at your house. And you'd open them up, and you'd get your cup of coffee, and you'd read, well, I would read the sports page. And the Lord seemed to say to me, where are your priorities, Steve? Because I would read the scriptures, if I had time, after I was done reading the newspaper. And so I had to begin to change that habit. And so anyway, make, it, make prayer a habit of your life. If you want some specific suggestions, I can give you some things that uh, have been helpful to me uh, about that. But the only thing you, can, you really can do is start to do something and find a way of uh, doing. I personally have found for the last year of my life that praying the daily office is the best way for me to make sure that I read Scripture and pray every day. Okay? That's what I do now. Okay? Well, well, what, what are his, what does he pray for? Well, let's talk about briefly three things that Paul prays for that church. He prays that God would lead them to unity, to purity, and to maturity. He prays for their unity as a church, for their purity as a church, and for their maturity as a church. Let's talk about these three things. Uh, let me read the text here for you. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. He's praying that they would love one another, unity in their church. So that you may approve what is excellent and also be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Purity. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Fruitfulness is what happens when you grow to maturity, right? You've planted a grapefruit tree before. It doesn't bear fruit right away. But as it matures, it bears fruit. So he is praying for these people 
that God would grow them in their unity as a family, in their purity as the people of God, so that they can be mature and reproduce and build fruit for the kingdom of God. Let's take a minute to think about these three things. Unity, first of all. He prays that God would give them a love that would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. This is not emotional, feel-good type of love. This is love built upon knowledge and discernment. The more that you know about God, the more you begin to love God. It's so important that we learn how to love people with the love that comes out of a love for God. As they know more about the gospel, more about, more about Jesus Christ, more about God and His love, they will grow in love. Their love will abound. Now, the, the, the church in Philippi did not seem to have lots of major problems, but they did have a difficulty with disunity. It's not surprising. I mean, if you remember, we only know about three people in that church. We know about a wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, if you were here last week. We know about an impoverished slave girl, probably uneducated, perhaps having been abused with lots of problems, who was also a part of that church. And we know about the Roman soldier and his family. And these are three people from totally different backgrounds, totally different economic levels, totally different. But what they had in common was their faith, their partnership in the gospel. And And in that church, we see that they were sometimes having trouble getting along. That's why we see in the the end of the first chapter, um, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I see you or come and see you or are absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. What's that about? Unity. And he's doing it in the context of not their love for one another, but their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's actually a military term. They're standing next together. They're dependent upon one another because they have an objective. Whatever the military objective would have been, theirs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he goes right on to say in verse chapter 2 and verses 1 and following, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and compassion, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same want, love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have the mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul earnestly prays for the unity of that church family. And in fact, he calls out two ladies in that church in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, most of us would be delighted if our names were in the Bible, wouldn't you? But if I'm Euodia and I'm Syntyche, I'm kind of embarrassed that my name's there. Here I am in heaven, and for 2,000 years, people have been talking about us, and they're wondering, what were those two ladies fighting about? You know, was it a potluck squabble? <laughs> you ever had a potluck squabble in your church? I remember having had one in my church, had a couple ladies, got, they got after each other during church, and I had to call them afterwards and say, by the way, no more of that. We need to be loving one another, and they apologized. 
terrible witness. They weren't getting along. They plead. And then he says, I also ask you, my companion, help these women. In other words, when there's disunity in the church family, it is everybody's problem. Help one another. Yeah. That's why it's so important. You know, the, the body of Christ needs to grow in love and in unity. But that's not the only thing he prayed for. He prayed also for their purity, purity, so that you may, and that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He is praying that they would make, he would make out of them as a community a different kind of people, a holy people. Other scriptures speak about it as a holy people, God's particular possession, a people who have been called out of darkness into light, that they would show forth His glorious, sing forth His praises and His glorious light, that there would be a holiness about them. And this, these twin uh, 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 priorities of unity and purity are so important in the Apostle Paul. He, he knows that just being a loving family doesn't mean you wink at every sin in the church family. That's not the true kind of unity. There's a balance between unity and purity, and it's difficult to keep that balance together. We feel that in our culture as well, but they certainly must have felt it in those days. Those people were being asked to live a lifestyle entirely different from the lifestyle all the way around them. They were asked to become different kind of people. They were asked to love people that other people said it was okay to hate. They were asked to honor their marital vows in a way that other people never honored their marital vows. They were asked to be a welcoming to people in a way that nobody would be welcoming other people. They needed to live a different kind of life. And in fact, they did. Oh, if I had the time, I could tell you, as we, I have it all the way through here, through all of these letters of Paul, these twin issues of unity and purity, of love and holiness. It's so important that we keep those in balance. And in our culture, it can be so difficult. I realize that many of us have been influenced by uh, habits and patterns which we've picked up from the world around us that have become ingrained. We almost think it's just fine. But it's not just fine because God is trying to create a new kind of humanity. God designed us to live together as a husband and a wife for the one man, for one woman, for his whole life, committed in our culture, that's not the way that it goes. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the way it's supposed to be. Purity. God has a way for us to live together in a way that honors Him. Yes. Uh, take, for example, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the book of Romans, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Purity. But in the same book of Romans, he says, may God, may God grant you to live in such harmony to one another in accordance with Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity and purity in dynamic tension 
In 1 Corinthians, again, I appeal to you, brothers, that there be no divisions among you. Chapter 1 and verse 10. But in chapter 5 and, or chapter 6 and verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. Okay? Therefore, oh, going on. Uh, Galatians, the same kind of thing. Unity and purity, both are of vital importance, and they're part of our challenge to figure out how to combine a welcoming environment where everyone feels safe and welcoming, but also the reality that, that we're called to live like new creation. God is making a new humanity, and He knows that all the things our culture tells you about the good life are a bunch of lies. They don't really lead to the good life. The good life is living your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, becoming the man, the woman, the human that God wants you to be. I know I'm speaking about immorality because that's what's in the scripture here as well, but it also relates to your business, business ethics, the way you treat your neighbors, the way you... Uh, the way you live, uh, how you go about your political life. As I often say, I'm not much concerned what your political points of view are, but I want you to be the conscience, to be the conscience of your own political persuasion. That's what I think is the crit. Be, the, be a political conscience. Say about your own people, enough. That's not the way we're going to do it. Be the conscience. That's what Christians are. It means living a different way. All right, so living uh, in balance between Unity and purity. These are so important. The Bible says grace and truth came to Jesus, through Jesus Christ. Grace, yes, but also truth. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. Truth and love. One person who's writing I respect said, holiness is fairly easy if you don't care about unity. You just split over every disagreement, right? Similarly, unity is fairly easy if you don't care about holiness. Anything goes and we shrug our shoulders and that's okay. But we're called to be committed to both of those. He says one of the most vital things we need to grasp is that the combination of unity and holiness. The world will take no notice of a divided and divisive church, but it also will take no notice of an unholy church. Yes, we need to have unity and purity. Now, you know, of course, here at our church family, whatever your background, whatever your beliefs, wherever you are, you're welcome. Oh, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. But when you come here, you know we're going to try to combine both grace, both grace and truth. We will try to speak the truth in love. We believe that's the Jesus way. Unity, purity, and then the third thing, maturity. Maturity filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. A, menace, a love that results in fruitfulness. As we learn out of the basis of the gospel to live a life of love, and to respond in purity to that gospel, letting that gospel story shape our lives, we then will become fruitful in our lives. And that fruit will be to the praise and the glory of God. Now, none of us gets this 100% right. None of us does. But aren't you glad to know that it's not about you and me. It's about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ.
Because fruitfulness comes from having been deeply rooted in giving yourself to the ground and to the future. That's what a tree is doing. And that's what Jesus has come. He, come and he, he came and he hung on a tree to give his life, to be buried, as he said, like a seed planted in the ground. But he rose from the dead, new life coming out of the ashes of his old life. So that as we trust in him, we can, uh, uh, we can experience that kind of love for him and that kind of uh, obedience to him, which will allow fruit to grow up in our lives. And we will then begin to become the human beings that Jesus meant for us to be. Let's be a church grateful for one another. But let's also be a church filled with prayers for one another for unity, for purity, and maturity.